Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Lloyd Gruber. I'm the dean of our Institute of Public Affairs here. It is a great delight to welcome my good friend, Kishore Mabubani, back to the LSE. Uh, he is a student of philosophy and history. Uh, he's had the good fortune of enjoying a career in public service and government at the, at the very highest levels, while at the same time writing extensively and to great acclaim on major policy issues. Uh, he was in Singapore's Foreign Service from 1971 to 2004 with postings in Cambodia during a war, uh, in Ma Malaysia, Washington, and New York. His, his New York posting was, was particularly notable in that Kishore served two stints there as Singapore's ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, and also as president of the UN Security Council in January 2001 and again in May of 2002. Those were busy, busy times. Uh, Kishore is currently the dean and professor in the practice of public policy at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy of the National University of Singapore, which is one of the LSE's uh, special partner institutions. At the same time, Professor Mabubani continues to serve in boards and councils of several institutions in Singapore, Europe, and North America, including the Indian Prime Minister's Global Advisory Council and the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on China. In the world of ideas, he's spoken and published globally. His articles have appeared in Foreign Affairs and Foreign Policy, in Time and Newsweek, in the Financial Times, and the New York Times. Uh, he's the author of a number of books, including uh, the book with the lovely title, Can Asians Think? You'll have to buy the book, I suppose, to find the answer. I think I have an idea what it is. Um, and uh, also the, the, uh, the book, The New Asian Hemisphere, The Irresistible Shift of Global Power to the East, which, as is true for all of his books, um, was published in dozens of countries around the world. Uh, Kishore's latest book, you want to show it off? <laughs> uh, is the one he'll be discussing in this evening's lecture. It's entitled The Great Convergence, Asia, the West, and the Logic of One World. And I'd urge you to buy that book, too. Uh, it's, I'll go ahead and say this in case I forget. After uh, tonight's lecture, uh, you can purchase the book just outside and then make your way back inside, and, and Kishore will, will sign it for you. So for a couple of years running now, uh, Kishore has been selected as one of Foreign Policy Magazine's top global thinkers, a title he richly deserves. Last year, the magazine described him as the muse of the Asian century. Uh, Kishore, welcome back to the LSE. I look forward to your, to your lecture and also to your musings. <laughs> welcome. Thank you, Lloyd, for that extremely generous introduction. But well, the only trouble with generous introductions is that after that, it's all downhill, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it's better to lower the expectations, Lloyd. <laughs> yeah, I'm also happy to be back here because, you know, as Lloyd was mentioning, we have a wonderful partnership between the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and the uh, LSE, and we've had this wonderful double degree program. We cooperate in the Global Public Policy Network. And I'm sure we've created a better world in the result uh, by through our work together. 
Well, as you know, I'm here today to speak about this book, uh, Great Convergence, and, uh, and since I'm a very unusual, shameless Asian, I'll reiterate your message that it's on sale outside. <laughs> And I'll try to give you, hopefully, some reasons uh, why you should try to purchase it at the end of this uh, lecture. But in trying to do so, I can tell you that the hardest part about giving a lecture is essentially deciding how you start. You know, in America, you begin with a joke. In Asia, you begin with an apology. <laughs> so I combine the two traditions and apologize for the bad joke. You know? <laughs> uh, but the bad joke was told by David Marshall, the first chief minister of Singapore, who's a man of Iraqi Jewish origin, great, brilliant man. And his story was about a young uh, priest, you know, who was very devout and loved to pray all day. But he had a small problem because he also loved to smoke uh, all day. So one day, in desperation, he went to uh, the bishop and said, "You know, Your Grace, please, may I have your permission to smoke while I pray? And the bishop said, Out of the question. This is sacrilegious and threw him out immediately. So when he walked out of the bishop's office looking very de dejected, a fellow, he met a fellow priest and the fellow priest said to him, What happened? He explained what happened. And the fellow priest said, come, come with me, I think there's some misunderstanding. So they went back to the bishop's office, and the fellow priest said to the bishop, Your Grace, there's been a misunderstanding here. All that this young man is asking for is permission to pray while he smokes. <laughs> and I begin with that story for a very simple reason. Because you can see that you have the completely the same set of facts but two completely opposite narratives. And the outcome depends on the narrative you choose. So in the same way, I actually believe that there are two competing global narratives emerging on the state of our world. There is one, of course, which is the dominant narrative, and I call it the Western narrative, and it represents very well the views of the 12% of the world's population who live in the West. But there's also an emerging narrative, equally strong and getting stronger, of the views of the 88% of the world's population who live outside the West. And essentially, the mission that I have with this book, The Great Convergence, is to try and describe the world as it is emerging, as seen from the eyes of the majority of the world's population. But what is absolutely amazing as you try to look at these two narratives is that there has been a profound shift you know, in this world. And what's this profound shift? In the past, in fact for decades, if you wanted an optimistic worldview, you came to the West. The West was almost like the custodian of global optimism. And in a sense, if you wanted depression or sadness, you would go out to see the rest of the world. But now, especially after the last global financial crisis, 
there's been a remarkable reversal where if you want to see pessimism, I'm told you go to Europe. Maybe not UK. And if you want to see optimism, you have to go to the rest of the world, including, by the way, Asia, Africa, and even Latin America. And that's a remarkable change in the world. And the big question, of course, is why is this happening and what's happening? So to try to capture the thesis of my book, I've tried to find a simple, uh, easily remembered acronym. And the acronym that I have chosen is uh, GPS. Uh, GPS, as you know, traditionally stands for Global Positioning System. But in my case, the G stands for good news, the P stands for problem, and the S stands for solution. So I hope in that process that my book will serve as an intellectual GPS uh, on the state uh, of our world. And uh, I hope that the, uh, after I've done so, I'm glad you've left some time for Q&A, and I also hope that you will ask me some very difficult and robust questions to get the discussion going. So, but before that, let me provide my thesis to you and begin with the good news. And here I must warn you all, in case you're not, hearing to, in case you're not used to hearing lots of good news, you might feel suffocated with the amount of good news that I'm going to give you uh, about the world today. And the best way to do so is to, of course, share some concrete examples, and maybe from three different areas. The first area, and in some ways the most important area in terms of global affairs, is in the area of peace and security, right? And as you know, throughout history, for thousands of years, the number one challenge for societies has always been how you avoid wars and how you create peace. In fact, for a long time, as you know, humanity yearned for global peace and assumed that it was unachievable. The unachievable has been achieved. Because wars are becoming a sunset industry. Indeed, the danger of a major interstate war is probably the lowest it has ever been. And in terms of the number of people dying in conflict, it's the lowest it has ever been since statistics have been kept. In the 1950s, about half a million people would die from conflict each year. Now the number is down to less than 30,000 a year. And by the way, this is part of a much larger shift in the human condition. And fortunately for me, as I was writing this book, uh, Steven Pinker, a professor in Harvard, came out with a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which he documents with great detail not just interstate wars uh, declining and diminishing, but also, frankly, uh, violence is being reduced in, he, in, hu in human affairs. And of course, when I, in the book, when I spoke with you know, great happiness about these positive developments, and there's, by the way, also a lot of UN data which you will find in the book that documents all this. Sure enough, when the reviews came out, uh, I think if I remember correctly, in the Washington Post said, 
Doesn't Kishore Mahbubani read the newspapers? Doesn't he know that there's a war in Syria, a war in Mali, a war in Afghanistan and a few other places? Sure. Yes, of course there was. But if you add up the total population of the countries in conflict, it is now literally a drop in the ocean of seven billion people in the world. And for the vast majority of the seven billion people of the world, this is the most peaceful world they have experienced in centuries. To take an obvious example, if you look at history through the eyes of a Chinese, starting from 1842, when the British knocked on the doors of China and said, we'd like to buy some Chinese tea, will you please accept some British opium? And the Chinese said, no, thank you, we would like some British gold. And the British, as you know, thought that was very unreasonable. And so they bombarded China and uh, seized some Chinese territory and forced China to accept opium. Many have forgotten, but for the Chinese, this is almost like yesterday. And from then on, as you know, if you look at Chinese history, that was followed by other colonial settlements, that was followed by the uh, Sino-Japanese War in 1895, which they lost, and then, of course, there was the Japanese uh, occupation, and even after 1949, they had things like the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And suddenly, after 130 years of hell, they've experienced 30 years of continuous peace and prosperity. Now that's a remarkable achievement for the huge country like China. And it shows, it demonstrates how the grain of human history has changed fundamentally. And it's something that we should take note of as a new development in global affairs. The second example of how of good news and this is another area where we thought that we would never win this battle and this is of course the battle against global poverty we thought global poverty was an endemic condition and we would never succeed in getting rid of it and even here we are making astonishing progress I can tell you that when I was ambassador to the UN in the year 2000 we had the famous Millennium Summit and at the famous Millennium Summit the UN established something called Millennium Development Goals I think in development literature it's called MDGs right and we are supposed to the UN set some very ambitious targets to be met by 2015 and you know what many of these MDGs will not be met because the targets were very ambitious but guess what one of the ambitious targets that will not just be met, but will also be exceeded, is the halving of global poverty by 2015. This is an amazing success story that we haven't noticed that is going on in the world. And I can tell you that the positive trajectory is so powerful that even a conservative body like the United States National Intelligence Council has predicted 
that global poverty will be totally eliminated by 2030. Now, if that's not a great convergence, what is a great convergence? Now, you can get this information from big data. You can also get it through anecdotal uh, evidence in many areas. In fact, uh, when I began, I was describing to Lloyd how I'd been through, I think, 14 cities in five weeks and trying to promote this book in the hope that somebody would buy it somewhere. <laughs> uh, and I remember my very, very first stop in Washington, D.C., about five or six weeks ago, on a Sunday morning, I turned on the television set and it was a CNN show uh, by Farid Zakaria, also called GPS. And in that show, Farid was interviewing Bill Gates. So he asked Bill Gates, how do you see the world? And Bill Gates, I was so happy with his answer, saying, Farid, I've never been so optimistic. And this is amazing. Well, this is a man who's now busy going out to save the world. So Farid said, why? Why are you so optimistic? He said, well, you know, I'm in the business of trying to help the poor save babies' lives and all that. You know, guess what, Farid, he said. Infant mortality is coming down. In 1990, 20 million babies were dying a year. 2000, down to 12 million. Now it's down to less than 5 million. And the, the fact that babies are being kept alive is a very powerful indicator of how things are improving because babies, as you know, are the most vulnerable citizens of a society. When they begin to die, something is wrong with the ecosystem around them, when they begin to live, it shows the ecosystem that is supporting them is becoming more positive. And so this is another indication of how we're succeeding in eradicating global poverty around the world. And this trend too, I think, will continue. The third example of good news uh, is if you look into the area of uh, middle classes, and as you know, throughout history, in fact, a very small percentage of the world's population, especially those, mainly those living in the West, would enjoy anything like what you might call middle-class living standards. But that's going to change profoundly uh, and dramatically. To cite the example of Asia, uh, today in all of Asia, out of the 3.5, 3.6 billion people in Asia, the number of Asians who enjoy middle-class living standards uh, is roughly about 500 million people. But by 2020, which is only seven years from now, that number is going to explode from 500 million to 1.75 billion. An increase of 1.25 billion in seven years, which, by the way, is one and a half times the population, total population of the West. So you can see why there's so much optimism out there relative to what you see uh, in the West today. And I want to emphasize uh, that this is not just a story about Asia alone, even though I've been giving you examples primarily from Asia. It affects other parts of the world. And here again, in this regard, I was really delighted that the Economist, I think it was last week's issue, 
came out with a story about African aspirations and pointing out how Africa, how well Africa has been doing uh, in the last 10 years. The per capita income has gone up significantly. The uh, uh, foreign investment has trebled in Africa. Six out of the top 10 fastest growing economies in the world in the last 10 years have been African and remarkable changes are even happening there. Which is why, if you look at the global figures of the middle class, it is now roughly 1.8 billion people. It will grow to 3.2 billion by 2020 and reach 4.9 billion by 2030. Which means by 2030, more than half the world's population will begin to enjoy middle-class living standards. And that surely is a great convergence that is happening in the world. But of course the big question is, why is it happening now? Why did the rest of the world underperform so badly before and why are they performing well now? And so in an effort to answer the question, I was hoping to come up with some really sexy phrase that everyone would remember. I couldn't find anything sexy or brilliant. I found a very boring phrase. And the boring phrase I came up with was that the reason why the Great Convergence is happening is because in societies all over the world, there's actually a convergence on what I call a consensual cluster of norms. I'm sure you'll agree with me, this is not a kind of phrase you remember uh, easily. But I think it accurately describes why societies are succeeding. And I listed out five norms which I think are driving this uh, convergence. The first and most obvious one, of course, is modern science. And here, the spread of modern science throughout the world is making a huge difference. If you want to know why uh, infant mortality is coming down, if you want to know why people are living longer and healthier lives, the spread of modern medicine around the world and modern standards of hygiene around the world and simple things like washing hands every day makes a huge difference uh, around the world. So that modern science is spreading. Two is what I call the spread of reason and logic. And the thing that's remarkable here is that more and more societies, and especially the leaders, are beginning to apply simple things like reason and logic to solve their public, pro public policy problems that they are facing in their societies. And that is a great leap forward also uh, in, in, in our history. And I must say, I was very pleased that after I came up with this list of five norms, when I, when I looked at Steven Pinker's book, and when he had to explain why violence is declining in human society, he said it's because humanity is climbing the escalator of reason. So I agree with him. People have realized that it doesn't make it unreasonable, it doesn't make sense to go to war. You can find other solutions to these problems. So the spread of reason and logic, which I'm sure, Lloyd, is also because of the work done by schools of public policy like LSC and Lee Kuan Yew School, also explain why this is happening. The third norm, of course, I describe as free market economics, and of course, one reason why 
many societies around the world are growing so fast is because more and more of them are adopting free market economics. And here, the best laboratory that shows the power of free market economics is provided by the largest population in the world, which is the population of China. From 1949 to 1979, China tried uh, uh, centrally planned state-run economics and went nowhere. And then Deng Xiaoping came along in 1979, smashed Mao Zedong's iron rice bowl, and told the Chinese people, from now on you'll get paid according to how you perform. How productive you are, how hard you work, and boom. In the last 30 years, China has delivered the fastest growing economy in the world. And that's quite remarkable, and that showed the power of free market economics. And here, if I may add something else, you know, the West was actually trying to persuade the rest of the world for a long time, hey, try out free market economics, it's good for you. But I know that when I attended UN meetings together with the Singapore High Commissioner here, Mr. J. Sudarsan, you know, there was so much suspicion in the third world when the West was prescribing free market economics. They said, Ah, this is a Western plot to allow us to import multinational corporations which will then again exploit us and we will be exploited all over again. But I can tell you that when China began to succeed so phenomenally with free market economics, many people in the third world said, maybe this is good for us too. So something that had been prescribed by the West and was rejected suddenly was found acceptable because they say, hey, China is not part of the West. It's trying this out. It's succeeding. We should do the same. And therefore, it's spreading throughout the world. The fourth norm I describe as a change in the social contract between the rulers and the ruled. And here especially, I would say, in many parts of Asia, it was the assumption that the ruler had a right to rule. And so all that the ruler had to accept was the dictates of the ruler. But something profound has changed in that perception, and now more and more people around the world accept what you take for granted in the West, which is that it is the job of the government to serve the people and not to rule the people. That's a major transformation in expectations of governments. And that, I think, in, in part at least, explains the dramatic changes you saw in the Arab Spring, where suddenly in the space of, I think, one year or two years, four leaders who had been ruling for 150 years, over 150 years, disappeared. Mubarak of Egypt, Ben Ali of Tunisia, Gaddafi in Libya, and the president of Yemen. Boom. The people no longer accept the old social contract and they expect the governments to serve them. And that too leads to improvement in performance. And the fifth uh, norm of which I'll be speaking more later is what I call the spread of multilateralism. And I think the growing cooperation among countries all over the world is also explaining why the great convergence is happening. 
So you can see that there's a lot of good news out in the world that we haven't taken note of, which I hope my book will try to uh, explain and, and spread uh, the message. But at the same time, there are also, as you know, lots of problems in the world. So I come to the P, which is the problem. Now, uh, in, I must emphasize, having worked for 33 years for a government of Singapore, which is, as you know, is one of the most tough-minded, hard-headed, realistic governments in the world, I'm not a woolly-headed idealist who believes that ideals is what's going to save the world. Actually, this is, which is why I spent three chapters in this book trying to dissect every major geopolitical problem in the world and trying to see how we can find solutions to them. So I do discuss the problems, and I'll be happy to discuss the problems uh, when we come to the Q&A. But the problem that I'm referring to today is a very specific problem which I think represents the biggest global, global challenge of our time. And how do I characterize the biggest global challenge of the time? To describe it, <coughs> I use a simple uh, boat metaphor. And what is this boat metaphor? I say that in the past, when 7 billion people used to live in 193 separate countries, it was like they were living in 193 separate boats. Each boat had a captain and crew taking care of the boat, and you had rules to make sure that the boats didn't collide, and that was basically how the 1945 rules-based order worked. But today, the 7 billion people in the world no longer live in 193 separate boats. They live in 193 separate cabins on the same boat. But the problem with this global boat is that you have captains and crews taking care of each cabin and no captain or crew taking care of the global boat as a whole. And I think if you absorb that metaphor, you begin to understand why we have so much difficulty meeting the global challenges of our time. And to, 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 to reinforce to the point that we are on the same boat, let me describe, talk about three major global challenges that illustrate how we have to come together and work together. The first and most obvious one that happened recently was the global financial crisis. And as you know, at the height of the global financial crisis in 2008-2009, something quite remarkable happened. And what is this remarkable thing that happened? It was that the most unilateralist American president of recent times, George W. Bush, became the first American president to convene the G20 leaders meeting. Now that was something quite remarkable, you know. He had resisted this. He didn't want any more multilateral meetings. But once he saw that the global economy was facing a dire crisis, he said, okay, the world has to come together to fix it. And as you know, it was a subsequent G20 leaders meeting here in London in April 2009 that saved the world, literally, because it was a coordinated fiscal stimulus plan by all the leading economies in the world that saved the global economy. It was as though the leaders finally came out of the cabins, went to the bridge of the boat and said, we've got to fix this global problem, and they cooperated and they succeeded. But the problem with that is that 
Once the crisis ended, the leaders went back to their cabins and the subsequent G20 leaders' meetings, as you all know, were a failure. So it showed that because we haven't changed the mindsets of the leaders, we continue to have this problem. A second uh, illustration of how we are in the same boat comes through clearly when you look at the challenge of global warming. And as you all know, as we all know, no one country can solve this challenge of global warming. If you're going to really find a global solution, all the cabins have to come together to cooperate to get this done. But you know how difficult it is. You saw what happened in the Copenhagen meeting. And the reason is that leaders are elected by their cabins and not elected by the boat. So as a result, when President Obama went to Copenhagen, his hands were tied by the US Congress. He could make no concession. And China and India said, quite reasonably, if the leading global emitter is not going to make any compromise, we are not going to make any compromise either. And that's why the meeting, for all practical purposes, failed to achieve a solution. Another example of how we are in the same boat, of course, is provided by the challenge of pandemics. And as you know, uh, pandemics respect no borders. They travel effortlessly around the world. We saw this with the SARS virus. It began in a small village in China, and from China went to Hong Kong, and from Hong Kong went simultaneously to two cities which are exactly on opposite sides of the world. Toronto and Singapore. And what's remarkable is that Toronto and Singapore are two of the cleanest cities in the world. And I hope the SARS virus episode demonstrated that if you stay in your cabin and you scrub your cabin clean every day, that's not going to protect you from a global pandemic because you have to cooperate with the rest of the world to solve this problem. So you can see in challenge after challenge that the world faces, we have to come together to solve this problem, which of course now brings me to the solution. And here in the solution, I've got some very good news for you. Astoundingly good news. Let's have a bit of suspense. <laughs> and this, amazingly enough, it is going to be very easy to fix the world. And why do I say it's going to be very easy to fix the world? Because in this book, I expose a dirty little secret. And what's that dirty little secret I expose in the book? It is that it has been Western policy to keep multilateral institutions weak over the last 30, 40 years. And this may have served Western interests 30, 40 years ago, although I argue it was never in the Western interest to do so, but it certainly does not serve Western interests. When you represent a minority in a shrinking global village, it is in your interest now to build a stronger rules-based order and it is in the Western interest now to strengthen multilateral institutions. But amazingly, it is very difficult to try and get this message across. 
which is why I begin this book by quoting from a speech that President Bill Clinton gave in 2003 in Yale, and he said in the speech, if we in America assume that we'll be number one forever, then fine. Let us carry on doing what we are doing. Doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. But then he added, but if we can conceive of a world where we are no longer number one, then surely it is in America's interest to work with others to create a rules-based order. And of course he didn't say this, but what he was implying, which will then constrain the next number one. Of course it's China. And I can tell you, in the book I also document that President Bill Clinton wanted to say this while he was president. And Strobe Talbot reveals this in his book. And Strobe Talbot said when Bill Clinton said, I must prepare the American people for the time when America is becoming number two, all his political advisors said, you must be mad. It's political suicide in America to talk of America becoming number two. And so he never mentioned it when he was president, and he could only say it after he stopped being president. And in the book, actually, I give several examples of several Western leaders who became very wise and said that we wanted to cooperate with, the, we should cooperate with the rest of the world. But all of them said this after they left office and not while they were in office. So I hope if my book succeeds, it might give courage to some Western leader to say this while they are in office and not after they resign and retire when they become very wise uh, about the state of the world. And the amazing thing is that you can fix these things very quickly and very easily. Let me just give you three concrete examples and then we'll turn the floor to Q&A. First thing is, as you know, if you want organizations to become strong, what you do is you make sure you select a chief executive officer who's the most dynamic, the strongest leader you can find. Right? Surely you, LSC teaches this, and Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy teaches this. But you know what? Do you know how the United Nations selects the secretary generals? Do they pick the strongest and most visionary leader to be the head of the UN? I can tell you that after Dark Hamashkol, at the height of the Cold War, when the, Unite, when the United States and Soviet Union disagreed on everything, the only thing they agreed on was that let us no more have a Dark Hamashkol to run the world. And that's why you had someone like Kurt Walheim becoming the Secretary General. And by the way, just to be fair, to avoid any misunderstanding, I should emphasize that even though the selection process has been flawed, you have people like Kofi Annan and Ban Ki-moon who are able to rise above that and do, some, uh, do a lot of good for the world. So despite that process, we've had some good secretary generals. But now what we need to do is change the process of selection and ensure that we pick the very best to be the leader of the UN. And guess what? Next time around, after Ban Ki-moon, it's the turn of Europe. And surely Europe can handle a strong European Secretary General. 
to run the organization. So can surely in all of Europe, you can find a Doug Hammarskjöld to be the next Secretary General. And so easy. Then the world will become a much better place. But you've got to persuade the permanent members to give up their own mindset. Second way in which it's easy to fix everything is of course through financing. And here, it is astonishing that the West has been financially strangling all the major multilateral organizations in the world. And in the book, I describe at great length what they did with the World Health Organization. 20 years ago, 75% of the WHO budget used to come from what they call regular assessed contributions that you could rely upon. 25% came from voluntary contributions which are fickle and can change year by year. And you cannot use that money to recruit health inspectors and make them stay in service for 30 years. After 20 years, the WHO budget is now almost completely reversed. 28% comes from regular assessed contributions which can, which you can use for long-term planning. And about 70% comes from voluntary contributions. And that, as I document in a book, uh, as, I re as I review a book written by Kelly Lee, has completely weakened the WHO. And it's weakened the WHO at a time when the world is becoming smaller and smaller, when the danger of pandemics is growing. This is absolute madness. The West is going against its own interests in doing this, which is why I tell the West, stop going on strategic autopilot, get rid of these policies and start afresh and start to strengthen multilateral organizations. And the third example, and here of course, as you know, uh, the, the most powerful international organization in the world is the UN Security Council. Uh, it set up the um, open-ended working group on Security Council reform in 1993. Nothing has changed, so people are saying, let us change the name from open-ended working group on Security Council reform to never-ending working group on Security Council reform. But that's an accurate description of what it's done. But the reason why it hasn't succeeded is because for every new permanent member that wants to come in, there's a neighbor that says, why not me? So for every India that wants to come in, there's a Pakistan that says, why not me? For every Brazil that wants to come in, there's an Argentina that says, why not me? And for every uh, Japan that wants to come in, there's a South Korea that says, why not me? But the most ingenious claim was made by the Italian ambassador, because when I was at the UN in the year 99 or so, when everybody was pushing for Germany and Japan to become permanent members, the Italian ambassador got very exasperated and he said, why are you all only pushing for Germany and Japan? We Italy, we lost World War II also. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see the lengths that countries went to to avoid reform. So anyway, I have a formula which I'll briefly describe as a 777 formula where you have seven permanent members, seven semi-permanent members for all the countries that might be losing any reform, so they get automatically rotated, and seven elected members. So at the end of the day, the, my simple message to all of you is that there are actually quite simple solutions available in the world to make the world a better place. And I hope if you all read my book, you'll discover that it can be done. Thank you.
Every time I hear Kishore speak, it always puts me in a good mood. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about the q and Don't, don't uh, kill my buzz. Uh, why don't we uh, open this up to, to questions, and perhaps we can take, should we take a, a few at a time, and, then, uh, and, and I would encourage you to, to keep, your, uh, keep your questions short. Um, actually, and also, uh, int- introduce yourself, if you would. Paul. Hi, uh, I'm Paul, uh, LSE student. Um, yeah, my question is, how optimistic are you on the problem of uh, anthropogenic climate change? Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm uh, Gert. I'm student at King's College in the LSE. Uh, you referred to the Arab Spring, what happened there, and how people no longer accepted the social contract. I mean, the reason why people did that was because the governments in those countries failed to deliver. Uh, to what extent do you think that it will be true for Asia in the future if the governments, if the economic growth will slow down, uh, the governments in countries like China, Vietnam, Singapore will fail to deliver? Do you think similar events as happened in the Arab world can happen in Asia as well? Thank you. Um, I do. Uh, hi, Professor. I was just wondering... Um, on the, at the Could state level, oh, sorry, I'm Ida from the MPA program, um, and to my question is more on the state level. I'm just wondering how are individual nations going to deal with all these good news? I mean, it's great that uh, you know people are living longer, they're dying less from conflicts, but this seems like then there would be a fair bit of additional population pressure, and so how do you think states will be dealing with this? Uh, do you see Asia converging with the West in terms of extending social benefits um, to, to more of its population? Or do you anticipate the West dismantling more of its welfare uh, structure to resemble the East? And um, in this, then, do you see, uh, I guess, tr- some amount of tension between uh, what you had mentioned in terms of changing in perception uh, of the social contract between the rule and the ruler um, of governments having to serve its people rather than for the citizenry just to accept their dictates. Thank you. Professor Mabubani, three, three easy questions for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, very easy questions. Uh, on, on climate change, I would say that I'm very pessimistic uh, in the short run because uh, uh, right now, I mean, one of the things I try to explain in the book is that, unfortunately, the ideas that are buried in the minds of policymakers when they come to make decisions are ideas that are obviously stuck in a different era. And to give you the most striking example, I know that having served as a diplomat for 33 years, all governments worship a concept which has long gone by sell-by date. And that concept is sovereignty. It emerged in the Treaty of Westphalia uh, in 1648. It's 365 years old. Governments still continue to worship it when it doesn't make sense anymore in trying to protect your cabin on the boat. So in the short run, because it is seen as a zero-sum game in the negotiations, if I, if, you know, if you, if, if, if you make less of a sacrifice, I have to make more of a sacrifice. 
So that's why there's the argument that is going on about how you reduce climate change. But in the long, in the medium term to long run, I'm actually optimistic because when I gave you the data about the number of new middle class citizens emerging, I suspect that they, through hopefully the forces of civil society and the forces of education, a, a new kind of global consensus will emerge throughout the world which says, excuse me, when it comes to taking care of our planet, we have plan A, which is our planet Earth, and no plan B, because we don't have a substitute planet Earth. So if we screw up without this only planet that we have, we are basically committing global suicide. And that's why I hope that over time, that consensus will emerge, and that will force governments to stop their zero-sum mentality when it comes to climate change uh, negotiations. It won't happen in the next five to 10 years. It'll happen after you all in this, in this room graduate and become policy makers, which I hope will be soon. Uh, the second one on the Arab Spring. Uh, by the way, it is um, this r reversal of the social contract between the rulers and the rule is happening in many other ways. Huh? Certainly, if you look at China, for example, uh, even though China had a Communist Party running it in 1949, Communist Party running it in 1979, the Communist Party running it today, the Communist Party of today actually bears no relationship to the Communist Party of 1960s or 1970s. I mean, in, in the old days in China, uh, and I remember, I forget what year, there was a major earthquake in China, hundreds of thousands of people died. Mao Zedong decided that the Chinese people would not know about it, and no one heard about this earthquake. Mm -hmm. There was no news coverage, zero. The Chinese Communist Party ran with China with an iron fist. Recently, a few years ago, when there had a major train crash, and the Chinese government literally tried to bury the evidence by taking, burying the compartments of the trains, there was a huge uproar in the uh, Chinese internet and, and, and lots of unhappiness, and the Chinese government was forced to stop. And that's an example of how even in China, even though the Chinese Communist Party is running China, it has to become much more sensitive to the wishes of its population if it's going to stay uh, uh, in office. So, and, and, I, and I think if any, any government that is, the only, probably the only, gov the very few governments in the world that escape this one is of course obviously North Korea is the exception. But leaving aside North Korea as the exception, every other government in the world is basically becoming more responsive in one way or another uh, to the people. And the third one on the uh, population pressure, I mean, you're, you're right, when you have good news, with every piece of good news that comes naturally a challenge. And I don't see the challenge, by the way, of uh, overpopulation. In fact, by and large, as you educate the world's population, the, the growth rates, population growth rates fall very sharply, by the way. Uh, and, and as you know, there's a correlation between educating women and then the population uh, birth rates comes down very, very, very sharply. So the, the, West does, the world doesn't face the problem of uh, overpopulation. It does face the problem of overconsumption. Because when you have 1.25 billion new middle-class people starting to buy all these consumer products, whether it's air conditioners or refrigerators or whatever, cars, it's going to create a world which is going to be a challenge for us in terms, both in terms of environmental pollution 
and also in terms of uh, uh, handling the, you know, the waste and so on and so forth. So it's a big challenge for the world. This is where also I hope we need to be aware that this is coming and try and find a, a global solution uh, uh, to this uh, problem. And the, um, the, the, the social contract everywhere around the world, as I ex uh, uh, explained in my earlier answer, is changing. Because they, we are creating a world where the amount of information available to the citizens has grown by leaps and bounds. You know, the story I tell in my case is how when I grew up in Singapore in the 1950s, our per capita income was the same as Ghana's, and I was came from a poor family in a poor Singapore. I dreamt of buying the Encyclopedia Britannica, and of course I never could never afford to buy it, and I never bought it. But today, with a relatively simple uh, cell phone and a tablet or whatever it is, and a relatively simple solar battery in a remote village, you can download Wikipedia. So the spread of Wikipedia throughout the world, the spread of information throughout the world, has created a new information universe, which means that governments have got to take this into consideration in whatever they do. So the social contract is changing day by day as information spreads around the world. Let me take three more questions. Uh, yeah, D down in front. Yes. I'm Ali Kamran from Pakistan. Mm. Thank you. Ali Kamran from Pakistan. Hi. Uh, you mentioned that uh, there is optimism in 88% of the world now, mm. as population-wise, and there is some gloom on the other side. Mm. And uh, as I has, uh, understood from your th thoughts, that the 88 percent are progressing due, uh, they have embraced the ideas from the West. Mm. So why is the West on the gloomy side now? Mm. Yeah. See over here. Yeah, um, my name is Ludwig. I'm a, a student here at the LSE, but I'm from Singapore. Um, I have a question. You um, mentioned in your lecture that the the 88 percent was very wary. Um, of the idea of free market capitalism when it was brought by the West, but then when China brought it, they uh, were succeeding. They took it on as an, a more successful thought. But then you also mentioned that now the West is becoming far more open to multilateralism ideas and organizations. But do you think that the other parts of the world are going to be wary of multilateralism now that the West is bringing it into them? Thank you. So, yes, in the back. My name is Venuri. I'm a postgraduate student here at the LSC. Uh, during your speech, you extolled the virtues of free market economic policies, yet many emerging economies are failing when it comes to implementing good governance practices. So, and that has paved the way for fraud, corruption, and trampling of human rights practices in the marketplace. So my question for you is, since you say it's very easy to fix many of the world's problems, do you have a quick fix for the crisis of good, of good governance uh, in the global south. Good. Great. I must say I love these challenging uh, questions. Uh, to our friend from Pakistan, actually one of the great paradoxes, uh, and I actually said this when I was in the book tour in America, I say in many ways the American project is succeeding. And I say that it is, uh, in my, in my, actually in my previous book I even said that it's seven pillars of Western wisdom 
that explain why Asian societies are doing so well. So the fact that Western ideas on free market economics, on uh, rule of law, are spreading around the world, the West should actually be celebrating all this, but unfortunately it isn't. And that part of this, of course, is due to the 2008-2009 financial crisis, the rise of unemployment, and therefore they don't feel... Very few people in the West today believe that their children will have a better future than them. So they're more focused on what their immediate situation is and not about the situation in the world. But if they reviewed the world objectively, they would see that the world is becoming a better and better place. And in fact, if you look in terms of aspirations, frankly, all over the world, you look at young people, they aspire to go to the same leading universities in the world. And that's, again, a common set of aspirations that is emerging uh, around the world. So this is why I hope that as a result of uh, reading this book, uh, more in the West should say we should be celebrating, but I can tell you it's a difficult idea to put across in this context because when the economists reviewed my book, even though the claim of my book is that the Western project is succeeding, they said, oh, Kishore Mahbubani has written another anti-Western book. And I found that quite amusing because if you read that the, the, the real message here is that, hey, the rest of the world is trying to replicate the West now. Why are you so gloomy? But <laughs> that question is considered an anti-Western statement. <laughs> so that's an example of how difficult it is to change mindsets, which is why I do say that there is a Western narrative and a non-Western narrative out there. And unfortunately, the Western narrative is becoming more close-minded, insecure, in a world where it should be uh, the other way around. The second question, by the way, on free market capitalism and how the world learned from China. By the way, I did not say that the West is now more uh, prone to pushing multilateralism. I, I say the West should promote multilateralism, but it is not yet doing so. And I can tell you that the thing that's absolutely shocking to me uh, as someone who has worked in government for so many years is how so many Western governments are going on autopilot and continuing to weaken multilateral institutions when it is no longer in Western interest to do so. It is actually, I hope hope, uh, we can both LSC and Lee Kuan Yew School can study this. Why is it that governments carry out policies which is against their long-term interests? And it is against Western interests to undermine these multilateral institutions, but they continue to do so. But the good news, by the way, is that even though the United Nations, which, as you know, is often demonized in the Western media, continues to enjoy a lot of legitimacy in the eyes of the rest of the world. If you do survey after survey in the rest of the world, you find that United Nations and its specialized agencies continue to enjoy the trust and confidence of the world. And by the way, whenever a pandemic breaks out, most countries do not allow U.S. health inspectors to come in, but they allow WHO health inspectors to come in. So if you weaken the WHO health inspector team, you're actually undermining the ability of the world to deal uh, with pandemics. So, and I hope, by the way, the other message in my book, incidentally, which I haven't touched upon, is that, frankly, uh, one of the challenges the world faces in, the, in terms of global governance is that at a time when the West is losing its confidence and its ability to manage the world, and therefore the supply of global leadership, which has traditionally come from the West, is diminishing, China and India, which should be filling in, and other emerging powers, which should be stepping in to fill the place of diminishing leadership from the West, are not yet ready. 
And so the problem for our world today is at a time when we are on the same boat and we need more global leadership, when the demand for global leadership is rising, at the same time the supply is diminishing. And that's a challenge that I think, this is why, again, why I wrote uh, the book at this point. Can, in time. can I just piggyback on this, this last question and ask what you uh, think about the uh, prospects for South cooperation? If, if the multilateral structures you think are, are, are weak and to some extent that's the result of the West lack of interest, one response is, well, the South can, can show the way. And there has been of course, talk about the BRICS. There, there have been efforts to create kind of southern, no longer the periphery, a southern core. It, it, do, you, do you think that, that that's the wave of the future? Uh, well, I mean, there is growing south-south uh, cooperation in, in, in many different ways. And by the way, incidentally, the fastest growing trade flows in the world are not across the Atlantic, they're not mm -hmm. across the Pacific. The fastest growing trade flows are in East Asia. And, and if you look at the charts, they are off the charts, literally, in the, the speed of growth. So in terms of substantive cooperation, uh, it is growing by leaps and bounds. Even, for example, the relationship within China and Africa is growing mm -hmm. by leaps and bounds. Of course, there's some controversy about what China's role in Africa is, and there are two sides to that. But nonetheless, when I talk to the African leaders, for example, when President Paul Kagame of Rwanda came to speak at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, he was asked this question. Uh, aren't you worried about uh, China, you know, exploiting Africa? He says, I think we can take care of ourselves. And this is what President Zuma said uh, last week to the Financial Times. He said, he told the West, stop lecturing us on China and Africa. We can take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I would say it will grow, but it is not yet ready to provide the kind of global leadership mm -hmm. uh, that the world needs. The final question about free markets and, and good governance uh, the actually societies all over the world are now facing challenges of good governance. I mean, frankly, the most polarized and paralyzed political system in the world today, in some ways, is in the United States of America. Right? You look at this absolute gridlock in terms of finding a solution to their fiscal problems. You find the same challenges of good governance here, even in Europe in a big way. Governments are struggling to generate em uh, employment for their citizens and look at the, I mean, Spain has a youth unemployment rate of 50%, am I correct? It's a huge, uh, that's a massive problem that you face. Uh, and the same way, by the way, the developing countries are also facing new challenges. China has done very well in terms of economic development, but I can tell you the number one China challenge that China faces is corruption. And I'm sure Xi Jinping, who was installed as the president of China today, must know that if he doesn't tackle the problem of corruption in China, then the, the future of the Chinese Communist Party is in doubt. And that's got to be his number one challenge. Then other countries, of course, face challenges like growing inequality, because in the first phase of economic development, you also have uh, rising inequality. So there are challenges everywhere. But the, at the end of the day, I can tell you that from the perspective of most Asians, they can remember what their life was like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So in my case, let's say uh, 50 years ago, I grew up in Singapore in a one-bedroom house where there was no flush toilet and where I was put on a special feeding program when I went to school 
you can see I no longer need a special feeding program now. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and there were ethnic riots in Singapore. And, you know, Singapore is just a typical third world country. But today, when you go to Singapore, the per capita income is higher than UK. It's amazing, you know. That amazing transformation that you see in Singapore in 60 years is now being replicated on a bigger scale. So as far as the population is concerned, they are, yes, the Indonesian government is imperfect. But after 10 years of growing at 6%, you are much better off than you were 10 years ago. So you see how much better off your life is. And so you begin to feel, I'm on the right path, and therefore I will support the, this, this process. Let's have another round. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Peter West. I was a, a um, student here in, um, a few years ago in, in global economic history. Um, I'm very pleased I came along this evening because I've, I've been uplifted by what the professor has to say. It's fantastic. Um, and I tend to be a bit, um, shall I say, um, negative about some things. And I've realized that that's just because I look at things from a European perspective. Because there's a few things you've been talking about, which, which as you say, in Europe we look at in a different way, like um, the multinational organizations. We, we have a bit of a bad experience with that in Europe at the moment, and we're struggling with some of that. And the great convergence that you're talking about is actually kind of, I see as juxtaposed with the great divergence that we see within European economies, particularly within UK economy now, that people are talking about the divergence of wage rates and the inequality there. And you were just mentioning about inequality being something that countries suffer as they uh, start off in, in their economic development. Well, maybe it's something they come back to later on because we have greatly increasing inequalities in, in the UK economy. And I'd be quite interested in how you see uh, that compared with the, the convergence and the globalization of wage rates, which is leading to that, in my view. Okay. Any questions from the... Yeah. I'm Wojtek. I'm a sixth form student. I was uh, wondering, how do you think you can convince developing nations not to enjoy the same levels of consumption as the West has enjoyed for the last 40 years, uh, based on specifically very flimsy climate issues? Third question, just in the back. You, yes. Hi, Professor Mabubani. Um, I'm, my name is Findi. I'm a student of Diplomacy and International Strategy at LSE. I always enjoy reading your books and listening to your talks, so it's a pleasure. Um, in your book, you, spoke, you speak at length about multilateralism. I want to ask you a question. Um, um, what do you think of the future of ASEAN? And do you think there is a chance for ASEAN to be a household name, just like the EU today is? Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, some quick responses. Uh, first, from the, from the European Union. By the way, I, one of the, I, I emphasize in this book, uh, that the greatest achievement of the European Union is uh, not that it's, uh, not its economic integration, you know. It is that in Europe, you don't just have zero wars. You have zero prospect of war between any e two EU member states. And that's an amazing civilizational achievement. If you ask me what I would like to see achieve in my lifetime in Asia, I want to see zero prospect of war in Southeast Asia. We haven't got there. I want to see zero prospect of war within China and Japan. We haven't got there. And I want to see zero prospect of war within India and Pakistan. 
and we haven't got there. So there's some things that Europe has achieved that are absolutely phenomenal, which if the rest of the world replicates, would be wonderful for the world, you know. So that's why I say we must develop the European ecosystem of peace and spread it to the uh, rest of the world. But inequality is a very different challenge. And by the way, this is a challenge that many societies face, including, by the way, even in Singapore. And here, the biggest failure of many governments is to explain to their populations that were the global economy being transformed with, you know, not, not millions, not tens of millions, but more like billions entering the global labor force, it's going to have, it is going to create what Joseph Shampita called creative destruction, right? So the economy, the, the, the industries that you could effortlessly succeed in, can, you can no longer succeed in because new entrants have come in. In the case of Singapore, for example, we went out of you know, textiles and shoes and toys manufacturing because we can't compete with China and India. And I can tell you, even in Singapore, there's rising inequality because the people on top are competing with the people in New York and London, so their salaries keep going up. The people at the bottom are competing with people in China and India and Bangladesh and elsewhere, so their salaries are being depressed. So as a result, the state has to intervene and come in to try and find solutions for this. But the solution is not welfare state. The solution is to, uh, in a sense, provide your workforce an opportunity to retrain itself and become globally competitive. And the good news that I have is that as the global economy overall is becoming bigger and bigger, the opportunities are becoming bigger and bigger globally. But you've got to, in a sense, move out of your comfort zones and try something uh, that is different. And I think that hopefully uh, can be done. In terms of reducing uh, consumption, uh, you I hope, by the way, uh, that Asian consumers will, will, will not try to replicate totally, let's say, American consumers, that you won't have two SUVs per household in Asia. Because if you did that, that would be a total disaster for the world. And the challenge, of course, is to, at this early phase, uh, to try and persuade Asian consumers to uh, become much more intelligent uh, in their consumption. And I can tell you there are beginnings of that. Various NGOs, uh, civil society groups are emerging and actually pushing for uh, environmental change. And, and again, uh, I document that uh, even in China, as you know, Chinese government doesn't feel very comfortable with NGOs, but it's actually allowed the emergence of environmental NGOs uh, to, to try and improve China's environment. So I hope that the new thinking will emerge in the area uh, of consumption. And finally, the question on ASEAN is a very uh, easy one to answer because I can tell you that I, I, I stress in this book, and hopefully I've already chosen my, the, 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 the topic for my next book, by the way. My next book will be on ASEAN. And the title I've chosen is already, and see, I'm already promoting my next book. <laughs> the title I've chosen is The Most Blessed Corner of the Earth. And why is Southeast Asia the most blessed corner of the earth? Because it is by far the most diverse region in the world by any standards. 
600 million people, including 300 million Muslims, 80 million Christians, over 100 million Buddhists and Taoists and Confucianists and Hindus and communists, you know, thrown in also. It is really the most diverse region in the world. And if any region should have become balkanized today, it should have been Southeast Asia. And every British historian writing in the 60s predicted that Southeast Asia would remain the Balkans of Asia. Guess what? The Balkans of Asia is now emerging as the most peaceful corner of Asia. That's a miracle. And that's also part of the great convergence that is happening. And part, a lot of it is due to ASEAN meetings. I can tell you when I first attended ASEAN meetings in 1970s, the room was full of distrust. But when I went back in 1990s, uh, the atmosphere had changed. The constant ASEAN meetings, a thousand meetings a year, had created habits of cooperation and consultation which have completely changed the regional uh, chemistry. And I add a very important point which I suspect very few of you would guess what the, what the word I'm looking for here is. It's just that I always say that to begin a talk, the reason why Southeast Asia is at peace is because of one four-letter word. Can you guess the four-letter word? The High Commissioner is not allowed to guess. He knows the answer. What four-letter words explains peace in South? Yes. What's your guess? Food, no. <laughs> That's a good guess, food. Okay, it doesn't begin with an F. <laughs> heat, heat. Heat, no, not heat. Not heat. Okay, I'll give you a clue. It came from here. Came from the British Isles. Okay, I'll give the answer. Is G O L F <laughs> golf, and 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 I'm not even kidding. Okay, I'll tell you, you know, a, a simple true story to illustrate my point. Were you when expecting I, us to guess that? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I mean, it's, uh, it's it is you know, it's, it's, it is actually, uh, you know, when you attend ASEAN meetings, you used to end up with a day of golf, and I can tell you, after playing a day of golf together and you're hot and tired and you have a couple of beers and then you negotiate, everything gets settled very quickly. <laughs> so, and they, these are true stories where the most difficult intractable problems were solved uh, over golf. So this is an example of how remarkable things are happening that the world obviously hasn't heard about. So let's have one, one more round, and I, I would encourage you to keep your questions really short so we can, we can um, squeeze all of them in. Um, you, sir. Hi, my name is John, and I'm a student from the LSE, but originally from San Francisco. And I was just curious if you could address the growing inequality in Singapore and China and how that's going to affect maybe the world in like 10 or 15 years and their governments and what you can kind of see they could do to prevent the growing inequality that's happening to affect their economic policies? Uh, up in the upper yes, decks. Uh, my name is Daniel, and I am from Mexico, but I now work here in industry in the UK. Um, 
you talk about um, capitalism in a good light, uh, talk about growth, and talk about prosperity that capitalism brings. I think that seems to depend strongly on, on growth, which is exponential growth. Is that not incompatible with the idea of sustainability and stopping climate change? Last question. Sir, here. Thank you, Professor. My question is, um, uh, is it ever possible for America to share power with China as mm. China rapidly um, closed the uh, economic power gap with the United States? And what do you think is the most viable and realistic uh, model for um, geopolitical arrangement in Asia? Good. Okay, I, I have to be very brief because we're supposed to finish at uh, 5 to 8. Yeah. Um, on the inequality question, I can tell you, by the way, that there are no easy answers. And I'd and I, I be, I be misleading you uh, if I gave you the impression that some, you know, that I, I mentioned there were easy, quick fixes to fix the world, the global multilateralism. There are no easy, quick fixes to fix inequality. And you have to make massive, uh, long-term investments in education, for example. <coughs> And you have to ensure that the education you provide is useful and relevant to the people and enables them to compete in a global marketplace. Because you're no longer competing with the boy or girl next door. You're competing with a boy or girl who's 1,000, 2,000 miles away, who can deliver whatever you are doing better, faster, cheaper. And so it's a different world out there. And so you keep on clinging to whatever. And by the way, amazingly enough, I mean, you know, you would think that, for example, legal research, right? American legal research would be safe in America. The American legal research can be done cheaper, better, faster in India. So you can no longer have to keep those jobs. So this is an example of how the world is changing. And you've got to basically, you have to have a new psychological mindset uh, uh, when, you, when you try to uh, look at the future opportunities. And, and inequality means you've got to try and create an economic environment in your country where you become globally uh, competitive, and there's no substitute for that. On the question of growth versus sustainability, of course I agree that uh, if, if you have this explosion of Asian consumers, it creates challenges for our planet. But at the same time, and let me give you the answer that Prime Minister Manmohan Singh gave when he was asked, you know, Mr. Prime Minister, aren't you worried about, you know, with all your policies, your uh, coal-fired plants, you're going to contribute to global warming? He says, yes. But he says, don't, what Prime Minister Manmohan Singh added is that, but please don't ask me to deprive 400 million Indians of electricity so that Americans can continue to have two SUVs parked in their houses. So if you want to make sacrifices, I'm ready to make sacrifices, but please, the rich must show the way and lead the way if you want to really create a sustainable globe. So this is why it's very important for the rich Western developed countries to, to lead the way in, 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 in sustainability, and then the rest of the world will hopefully copy them. Now, the question on America and China, and, and, and this, is, you, 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 this is actually quite a serious answer to you, which is that if you read my book, you'll find the answer. <laughs> <laughs> and what I, what I, 
I, I can tell you that it will be by far the most challenging relationship because throughout history for thousands of years, the most important relationship has always been between the world's greatest power and the world's greatest emerging power. The world's greatest power today is America, the world's greatest emerging power is China, and that will be the defining uh, geopolitical challenge. And of, at the, So on that front, I can tell you that there's both good news and, and, and bad news. The good news, of course, is that it's amazing how interdependent the Chinese and American economies have become. So let's say China relies on America to buy its products, America relies on China to buy its U.S. Treasury bills. And that interdependence has ensured that the relationships remains relatively uh, stable. But at the same time, there's also bad news, and, which I also described, and which is that there's a rising level of suspicion between the elites in China and America, and that's dangerous. And that, that, that's why we need to find ways and means of improving that relationship now. I can tell you that when President Obama announced his pivot to Asia, which a word that he subsequently withdrew, as you know, it wasn't because he had fallen in love with Asia, it's because he knew that America had to be there to counterbalance China. So the great game between the United States and China is just beginning. Great. Before we wrap up, first of all, the, the great game, of course, is golf. Don't, um, before we wrap up, just the, the logistics, uh, the, the book is on sale just outside, and, and Professor Mabubani will, will stay here. So if you grab the book, come around, he'll sign it. So uh, I have to say, I'm a pessimist by nature. I was in a good mood after your talk. You received probably a dozen, if not more, very challenging questions, and I'm still in a good mood. So thank you for that, and uh, <laughs> welcome back to the LSE. Thank you. Thank you.